1 Samuel chapter number 30, verse number one says this, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. Ziklag is where David and his men were living. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire. And their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Most of us, at least those of us that are 20 years old and, and upwards, can look back at moments in our journey with the Lord and recognize at least one time where we said something, did something, decided something that got us into a terrible situation that we needed God to rescue us from. I, I, I could probably, if anybody cared to know, I could probably list at least three major times in my Christian life where something I said, something I decided, something I did got me into a place that God never intended me to go and I needed God's help not only to get me out of the moment but to clean up the mess that came from that. And I want to tell you something. He's actually that gracious and that merciful. He's not above coming to your rescue more than once. He is way more gracious, forgiving, and compassionate than you are and than I am. But I don't ever want to bank on that. I don't ever want to say, yeah, I know what I'm doing is about to get me in trouble, but I'm sure God will get me out of it. Because those are the times you'll probably find that he won't get you out of it. If you know ahead of time and you do it presuming upon his grace, that grace that you presumed upon might not be there when you need it. David had lived 16 months out of the will of God. The man after God's own heart had backslidden on God and had been backslidden for 16 months. Now what's interesting is it was the easiest 16 months he had had in the past probably 10 years. There was nobody hunting him. He was able to stay under the radar of Saul, wicked King Saul in Israel who was trying to kill him. He was actually becoming good friends with the pagan king, Achish, the king of Gath. And as David was going out with his kind of uh, guerrilla warfare, they were, they were conquering some of the pagan people and they were taking the bounty from those raids and David was uh, increasing in wealth. So, so get this, he's backslidden on God and things were circumstantially easy. He's living in a new city that was given to him, didn't cost him a thing. He's best friends with the most in, in powerful uh, political figure in the land and his bank accounts are going up and his following is growing. Now, you know how easy it is when you look at those metrics, you can say, well, I, I must be pleasing God. I, I must be, it is so easy to be able to have a false sense of peace outside of the will of God if all the stuff in your life seems to be lining up well. 
Another example of that would be Jonah. I use this example regularly. Jonah was heading in the complete geographical opposite direction of where God had sent him. God said, go this way. Jonah went that way. And Jonah had enough peace about it to go down in the bottom of the ship and take a nap. And that's when the storm came. This is David's Jonah moment. This is David's stormy sea moment. And so I want to talk to you about how God comes to the rescue of King David when David had tied himself up, tied his life up, tied the lives of his followers, the life of his family, the lives of their families, he had tied them up in an impossible knot that he wasn't going to be able to undo himself. And this is where God moves in and says, David, I've let you hit your rock bottom. You are learning some things. And from this point forward, I'm going to usher you into your glory. And so let's go back into these verses. We'll go through most of the chapter tonight, and we'll start back up in these first five verses. And let's just paint it what it is. David here reaps what he has sown. Y'all are familiar with that, that, that terminology. David was reaping what he sowed. He was harvesting 16 months of bad seed that he had been planting. And so here's what it looks like. He, he finds these unforeseen events begin to unfold. He never saw it coming. That's the way it works when God wants to break you, by the way. It's usually something that if you're in like backslidden or rebellion something that you didn't foresee is going to get your attention and it looks like this for David it said when they came to Ziklag by the way I've always wanted to meet a Christian couple that were confident and bold enough when they have a baby on the way to name that baby Ziklag I love that name there's just something good about it so if you're a baby on the way that's a prophetic word you don't even have to pray about that name anymore they were on the way to Ziklag, and on the third day, so three days' journey going back home from the battle scene that they were just kicked out of, the Amalekites, which were a vicious group of people in that territory, made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. So David and his men are gone, all of them, and Ziklag is raided by the Amalekites. And the Bible says that they overcame Ziklag, they burned it with fire, and they took captive the women. That's all of these soldiers' wives, all of them. And all who were in the city, both small and great, they didn't kill anybody, but they carried them off and went their way. So here's David and 400 of his men. Actually, I think it was 600 of his men. And they're going back home. I've never been in the military, but I know enough and interacted with enough military men and women that to, to get your discharge, to get your papers, to go back home is one of the most delightful things. Very few things move me to tears online, but I'm a sucker for those soldiers when they sneak up on their kids at school and the kids don't know. And those eight, nine, 10 year old boys and girls, they've all of a sudden daddy's home and he's dressed in that military garb and the kids get am and I'll just sit there and blubber like a baby just watching those reunions. Well, these guys were coming back home, and so they're thinking, I can't wait to see my wife. I haven't seen her in a month. I can't wait to see my kids. I can't wait to hug my babies. I can't wait to sleep in my own bed. I can't wait to eat a good meal. And so they're heading back up a three days journey, and look at what happens. What they don't know is while they were gone, another enemy had come in. David had left the city completely vulnerable, didn't leave a single person to watch over the stuff. By the way, that's the way we think if we ever get backslidden and stay that way. We think we're, in, we're impervious to assault. We think nothing's going to happen. We think that we've got it, we've got control, and ain't nothing going to happen to me. And that's what happened to David. David didn't even think to leave any kind of guard around the women and the children. And so while they were gone, the Amalekites came up, stole everything out of the city, including the wives and the children, and then burned the city with fire. So look in verse number three. 
here we see the shock, the shocking moment. So it says, when David and his men came to the city, they found it, just as it was described, burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters were taken captive. I want you to just, let's not make this a Bible story for a moment. Let's remember, this is a Holy Spirit-inspired factual account of a historical event. So these are real women and children who were defenseless against a marauding group of people known as the Amalekites, vicious, this is Bronze Age kind of cutthroat, barbaric kind of men. They come in and they take these women and children captive, drag them out of their cities, take them away from their home, and as those women and children are looking over their shoulders, they see the smoke and the flames rising as the soldiers, drunk with their own power, drunk with their own lust, planning Lord knows what to do to these poor women, and everything's going up in smoke, and the women and children uh, can't have the very thing that they need. What is it? Where are their husbands? Where are their dads? Because David, the backslidden leader of all of them, had failed to protect the people that meant the most. And David and his men are now marching back home, and when they find the scene, look at the devastation in verses 4 and 5, and this, what I call, unbearable pain. It says, David and the people, the men, his soldiers, the people who were with him, they raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam and Abigail. So let's now put ourselves in the, in the place of the men. These guys were hardened warriors. These, these men knew how to shed blood. These were, these were not politically correct turn the other cheek kind of guys. Don't read this in the light of New Testament Christianity. Read it in the historical account of the, the Near East and the Bronze Age, and these guys were warriors. If you go back and read previous chapters, they were killing people left and right. I mean, they were, these guys were cutthroat, hardcore military men, and the Bible says when they got home and saw the utter devastation, their wives and children gone, Notice the language of the Bible. It didn't just say they shed a tear. It said they wept and wailed until there was no more strength within them. Um, what couldn't bring them to their knees in combat, grief did bring them to their knees. It's amazing to us. I mean, there, there's just something about the power of love. And when these men got home and all they've got is the unknown, are our wives dead? Have they been ravaged? Are our children dead? There was no blood anywhere. And so they don't know what's going on, but they're overwhelmed with a sense of grief. I believe, if I can, if I can just kind of uh, process here, I believe at least with one of them, David, I believe there would have been not only grief, but guilt. A, a backslidden man with a heart after God who knows he's been living and running in fear from the Lord and from the Lord's will for over a year. As soon as he gets over the top of the hill and he sees what's there, he not only grieves the loss of his two wives, he knows it's his fault. He knows he did this. He knows that as the leader, he set up the circumstances that have now led to the pain, the risk, the vulnerability, and the danger that everybody else... You see, David planted all the seed, but everybody else had to harvest it. And so this is the situation here where David is now hitting rock bottom. He's lost, I mean, I know this is 
obviously not the same kind of scene that we live in, but David's had three wives up to this point. His first wife was taken back by her wicked father, King Saul. He lost that wife. He married again a Hinoam, and then he had a second wife at the same time, Abigail, who we talked about earlier, and now he's lost all three of them. And so David is grieving over this, but here's the point I want to get you. This is the Lord. This isn't bad luck. This isn't the devil. This is the Lord. This is the Lord's, hey, this is the Lord's showing love to David. See, Jeff, how can you say such a thing? David's life is falling apart. Right, because it's not the life God ever offered David. David chose a life that was out of the will of God, and because God loves David, God puts his finger on that fragile Ziklag life that David created for himself. Ziklag is a representation of what we can do on our own apart from God. Because David built all of that. And what did God do? God allowed a moment of time, just a couple of day period, where David didn't have his eye on the ball and the enemy comes in and destroys everything that David made. But here's the thing. God's not obligated to keep our made-up lives propped-up lives. He does not obligate himself to keep our constructed lives that we've made for ourselves. He's not obligated to keep that thing propped up for us. As a matter of fact, we find many times in Scripture when people have built something outside of the will of the Lord, the Lord will actually, in mercy and grace, he'll bring that thing down so that they'll hit that rock bottom and look up to him and say, what do you want from me? And that's exactly what's about to happen to David. So he's fully and finally impacted by 16 months of his own backsliddenness, his life, the lives of his two wives, all of his followers' lives and all of their families' lives were experiencing the depths of suffering because David, as the leader, had chosen to live at a distance from God. Very quick pastoral application here. Not everybody in the room has a role of leadership, but I, I do want to say this. Um, all of us have influence on others. You may not have a position or a role, or you may not even be gifted for leadership, and that's fine. God doesn't want everybody to be a leader, but everybody here has influence, and this is what we need to remember, and especially those of us that are heads of our households or maybe in, in have leadership positions in the kingdom. Everybody else eats at the table that we set for them. So when we are living our lives, our lives always send out a ripple into other people's lives. And David had convinced himself that he could hold everything together. And all it took was just literally probably a 24-hour time period for David to come to the conclusion that the life that he had been building for 16 months outside of the will of God was something that was devastatingly sinful. And now here he is. So... Let's pretend we don't know the rest of the story. What's he going to do? Because there are a lot of options. I've seen it. You've seen it. When people's lives fall apart, we've all seen people get bitter with God. We've seen people get upset with the Lord. We've seen people blame God. Uh, whether or not they, they are reaping what they sowed like David is, or if it's just a, you know, the reality of living in a sin-cursed world where bad things happen to us, we've seen people get bitter with the Lord and stay that way. David, in another instance later on in his life, experienced something else similar to this, where they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, and a man reached out his hand to steady the Ark so it didn't fall off the cart, and God killed that man for being irreverent with holy things. And the Bible says that David got mad at God. He got mad at God and even named the place 
concerning David's offense at God. But hallelujah, David got angry with the Lord but didn't stay angry with the Lord. In this passage, we don't see any of that. What we're going to see is how you and I always need to respond. When, when and if we ever find ourselves in a situation where we have created this impossible knot, I'm going to tell you, if we ever want God to untie the impossible knot, the first thing that has to happen in our lives is this thing called humility. We have to humble ourselves. And that's exactly what David's about to do. So let's look in verses 6 through 9. Y'all still with me? This is where David returns to his gracious God. Pardon me. He finds himself utterly alone. So here's the deal. These big, tough warriors are crying themselves flat on the ground until they have no more strength left to weep. And look what it says about David. David was greatly distressed. Why? Because the people, his followers, his soldiers, spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. There was a time, not too terribly uh, long before this scene that we're reading tonight, where David longed to have one man to care for his soul. He was all by himself. He was in the cave of Adullam. Saul was hunting him down like a, uh, you know, a, a deer out in, the, out in the wilderness. And Saul was wanting to kill David. And God started sending men to David. He started sending these men to David. And when David saw him, he, he formed a militia. His leadership instincts took up and he trained these men. And when these men came, they're described as they were, when they came to David, they were in debt. They were discouraged. Some of them had been run out of the kingdom by Saul. So these men, when they came to David, they were broken. Their lives were all jacked up. And they found in David a leader who believed in them. Uh, he, they found in David a leader that could take them where they needed to go. And for 16 months, they also were living fairly easily. They also were prospering financially as they went on these raids. And so the one that they loved for a time, he seemed gloriously good. They were like, oh, David's our leader. Hallelujah. We've got this amazing leader. David, you are awesome. But then in one short season, when David's poor leadership and judgment cost them everything, look at their instinct. Their instinct is, we're going to kill this guy. We're going to kill him. By the way, some of you may have a thirst for leadership in the kingdom. You better get used to stuff like that. Because I'm going to tell you, it's not uncommon that when everything's going great, we love you, we love your leadership, you're awesome. You know, five gold stars for you, our great leader. And then you let a bad season come, they're like, anybody got any rocks? Because we're going to stone this dude right now. And that's exactly what they did to David. Gr grieving people, by the way, say and do things that they wouldn't normally say or do if they weren't grieving. Uh, these men, you got you to cut them a little bit of slack. Uh, their wives and their children were gone and nobody knew where it was and it was because of what David had done and so grieving people don't know what to do with all the pain inside and it's very common for them to direct it maybe at you sometimes maybe at somebody else we need to learn how to exhale that moment and recognize that's the grief talking, that's the grief responding, that's the grief accusing, that's not really this person and who they are in their right mind. And somehow David was able to keep his bearings, but that alone wasn't enough because it says he was greatly distressed. And that's a Hebrew phrase that, that indicates that David was rocked to his core. It was cutting deeply within him because he knew he was about to die. When you got guys that kill for a living, 
and they're looking at you and they're angry with you and they're saying we're going to stone him to death David had a legitimate reason to to be a little bit dis, uh, disturbed on his, in his spirit but look at what he does and this is where everything turns in one verse David's whole life is about to shift hear me on that one very important decision and response to adversity was the on-ramp to David stepping into his glorious destiny. One decision. And so it looks like this. In verse 6, we see him intentionally humble himself in the presence of the Lord. It says, they were speaking of stoning him, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Uh, I remember first reading this in the King James. I believe it says he encouraged himself. Is that what it says? He encouraged himself in the Lord. And I've always wanted to make sure I get this right because it's such an important phrase in the life of David. What does it mean that he strengthened himself? We're not told exactly what he did in that moment between them wanting to kill him and everything that would come next. We're simply given the summary of it that David strengthened himself or encouraged himself in the Lord. And so what I do as a Bible student, what I do is I want to go to resources that will tell me what's the Hebrew word that the Holy Spirit originally inspired the writer to put down. When it's not as clear in the English that's a translation, I go back to the original languages, and the Hebrew word indicates this. That whatever David did, he positioned himself intentionally to receive courage from the Lord. It's a, a Hebrew word that means to stabilize something, to prevail in something, or to lay hold of something. So if we can amplify that a little bit, we could read it this way. They were seeking to kill David, but David intentionally positioned himself to receive courage from God. David intentionally positioned himself to regain his stability from God. David positioned himself to be able to prevail in God. And I like this the best. The Hebrew word actually indicates in places to lay hold of something. David got to where he could lay hold of God again, if we can say it that way. All of that speaks of this. David quit running from God. 16 months, lots of outward prosperity for those 16 months. Everything seemed to be clicking along pretty good. And then in one day where God allowed everything to fall apart, David knew his running days were over and he did what all of us must do. Friends, I, I, I just, I think we have to slow down here. I'm certainly not accusing anybody of being backslidden. I don't know where anybody is. Uh, with the Lord right now, but I will tell you this, it's very easy for us to, to just stop in our walk with Jesus. And when we stop in our walk with Jesus, when that means we are not proactively pursuing the Lord, what happens is you don't have to run from the Lord. If you just stop, the world pulls you away from the Lord. It's the same result. You don't have to say, oh no, God, I don't want to be in the presence of God. Let me get out of here. All you've got to do is you if you just stop, you stop praying, you stop obeying, you stop reading, you stop connecting with other believers, you stop prioritizing righteousness and love and sacrifice and submission. All you gotta do is just drop a few of those balls and, and you'll just find distances created between you and the Lord. And so you, you, you lack power, you lack conviction, you, you just lose things in, like that, in those times. And so what does God do? 
Sometimes we picture God as up there. It's like, I'm so mad at you because you're not honoring me, my child, and so I'm just going to bring the hammer down on you. That's actually not what he does. Anytime God disciplines his children, it's not because he's furious with us. It's because he disciplines us according to what is best for us. When we, when we read in the book of Hebrews about God chastising or disciplining his children, it's compared to earthly fathers. And the writer says this, earthly fathers discipline because they're offended or they're angry or for their own good. They, earthly fathers discipline because they need to get something out of that child. It's not like that with God. God disciplines us for our own benefit. And so when he brings us to this place, we have to say, okay, I don't have to run anymore and I better not run anymore because God's not coming after me as a heated, angry, furious, vengeful one who's looking for an opportunity to grind me into smithereens. That's not the heart of the Lord. The heart of the Lord is, child, I had to bring you down because if I didn't, you just would have kept getting further and further away from me and I love you too much to ever allow you to do that because my child, I know how much you need me and you need to learn how much you need me. And so that's what David does here. And so he lays a hold of the Lord. These men that had been so loyal and so loving towards David were now rebelling and that once sweet milk with them had now turned sour. And David's in this terrible place and he recognizes, I can't trust my men anymore. I can't trust King Saul anymore. I can't trust King Achish of the Philistines anymore. But most important thing David learned is, I can't trust David anymore. Lord, I need you. And so he lays a hold of God in this moment. Uh, before moving on, there's a proper way not to trust yourself. I, I don't think it's proper for us to go around and just assume we have no wisdom, we have no convictions, we have no abilities, we have no power, we have no strength. But I will say it's important for us to know that, that we have none of that apart from the grace of God. And so what David is now saying is, I can't trust in my own leadership. I can't trust in my own resources. I can't trust in my own experience. I can't trust in my own power. This is what it's got me. And literally, if you think about it, David had nothing, nothing. Ziklag's burned to the ground. David had the garment on his back and whatever weaponry he had brought with him from the battle scene. His wives are gone. His, his soldiers' wives are gone. The city's burned to the ground. You find out later that the uh, Amalekites stole everything out. David doesn't have anything. And sometimes, friends, listen, God has to bring people to that place. Now, maybe it's not you. Maybe you've been there, done that, and you've learned that lesson. But I, there's a lot of parents and grandparents in the room. And some of our kids are getting older. Some of your kids are grown up. Some of you have grandchildren. Here's something to remember. When God is endeavoring to break somebody, get out of his way. We sometimes protect our children from the discipline of God. And because of that, we prolong the discipline of God. Sometimes we are so compassionate and we want to preserve all difficulty and all harm and all sadness and all hurt from those that we love the most because we just feel like that's the right thing to do. And sometimes we're so compassionate, if I can say it this way, I don't know it's exactly like this, but it might be, sometimes I can just picture the Lord saying, I love the fact that you're loving, but your love right now is the type of love that's actually counterproductive to what I'm trying to do in his or her life. 
And actually, sometimes God calls us as parents, spouses, loved ones, um, uh, grandparents, leaders, sometimes we actually have to take a step back and just, okay, Lord, do what you've got to do to finish the breaking process. I'm going to hold on to all of this love, and as soon as they're broken, I'm going to pour it right there, and that's when it'll be helpful. That's when it can actually cooperate. I, 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 wanna, I just want to leave you with this. I almost feel like a little prophetic anchor in this thing that somebody needs to hear this night. Sometimes our version of love actually gets in the way of God's version of love that he's trying to pour into somebody. And God, God's love isn't always syrup and powdered sugar and ribbons. Sometimes God's love is taking the child out behind the woodshed and whipping them. I know you don't like that. Some of you are thinking, is there such thing as kingdom defects? I'm going to call kingdom defects on what the pastor just said. I'm just telling you, you have to rip out large sections of your Bible if you don't want to believe in the strong, disciplining hand of God. The key to remember is this. His motivation is always perfect. And it's always for our good and his glory. So there's David. Let's get back into the text here. And so we, we see him strengthening himself. Now, here's where we see the evidence of David having repented. He, he begins in verse 7 to seek the Lord's ways again. I'm going to just read some verses here. David then says up. He strengthens himself in the Lord as God. David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me pardon me, bring me the ephod, and I'll tell you what that is in a minute. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, and here's what David asked the Lord. Shall I pursue after this band? He's talking about the Amalekites. Shall I overtake them? God answers David, pursue, for you shall surely overtake, and you shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, uh, where those who were left behind stayed. All right, let me, let me just give you this very quickly. So for the first time in 16 months, David is seeking the will of the Lord. It's the first time you see him praying this whole time. He's been doing everything according to his own wisdom, according to his own understanding. He gets in trouble, and he calls for the priest, and there was a garment that God had told Moses to prescribe for the priest to wear. It's called an ephod, and we're not sure exactly how it was used, but in the ephod, there's a pocket where there's this thing called, the two little things called the umum and the thumum, and the, the, the best we can tell, they were, they were lots. They were maybe like dice. That's about the best description. And somehow there was a sanctioned way where the priest would inquire of the Lord. And I don't want to say that they were rolling dice. It's not flippant like that. But this was a way that they could discern the will of the Lord. They would pray, and then they would use the umum and the thumum. That's a tongue twister. And they would know the will of the Lord. So for the first time, David's saying, I need to start asking God what he wants. Abiathar, come up here, bring the ephod, let's discern the will of the Lord. And so through that process, David, I love this, because this is amazing to me. You gotta remember the situation. Their wives are gone. Every ticking moment is crucial. And it, David is a take charge, type A kind of guy. And I'm gonna tell you, most of us dudes that are in the room, if we, if we knew our wives and children were with the enemy, 
it would be ready, fire, aim. I mean, it would just be like, well, let's just do something. And David took precious moments. And instead of an impulsive response, he says to the Lord, I just want to make sure, Lord, that I even have permission to go and pursue these men that have taken our wives and our children. And the Lord says, yes, you have my permission. And yes, you're going to rescue them. What's amazing to me is also is this. This is the incredible grace of God. Um, theoretically, if any of you have ever sinned since you've been a Christian, I'm just theoretically, if you've ever done that, sometimes when we sin, there's this thing in us after we confess it, we know it was wrong, we say, Lord, sometimes there's, there's the potential. Hopefully you don't struggle with this. I know I used to horribly struggle with this. That when I did something wrong, I sinned against God, I would think yeah, he's probably pretty mad at me. I better wait a couple of days, give it a little space. Maybe he'll see me doing some good stuff down here, and then maybe I'll just, hey, hey Lord, um, are, are we good? Um, I don't do that anymore, by the way. Um, and the reason why is because God doesn't do probation. He does pardons. And so David, I just love this about him. David's been living a backslidden life. He repents in one minute, and the next minute he's praying to God, and God, God doesn't say, oh, you're talking to me now? You're seeking my will now? He doesn't lecture him about Ziklag. He doesn't lecture him about how bad he's been. He doesn't read him the riot act because of all of David's 16 months of failure. There's none of that. God looks at David, and he says, yes, son, thank you for asking me now. Yes, you're going to go after them, and David, we're going to go get your wife back. I love the fact that, friends, we don't have to be tentative with the Lord when our hearts are free and clear. When we repent, don't put yourself on probation. Come boldly before the throne of grace. Find that mercy. Find that grace. Find help in your time of need. And that's exactly what David did. And so he's beginning to seek the ways of the Lord again. There's this repentance is now birthed restoration his intimate communication and fellowship with the Lord is immediately restored. I, I really just want to give you this. I, I, I know I'm kind of pastoring us through this passage tonight, but listen, walking around and sulking, feeling sorry for yourself or beating yourself up for sins after you've confessed them, that doesn't help. The wages of sin is what? So if you really think you're going to help, let me tell you what you have to do. You have to die and burn in hell if you're going to help pay for your sin. That's your only option. And listen, that's obviously not an option for the Christian. So it doesn't actually honor the Lord for us to sulk for three days or three hours or three minutes after we have repented and confessed it. We have to believe that he is that good. We have to believe that when we have said, yes, Lord, I agree with you, because that's what confession is. Confession is not informing God of something God doesn't know. Confession is, Lord, I know now what you've said about this. This thing was wrong, what I said, what I thought, what I did. I confess it, Lord. I repent of that thing. And friends, you don't wait five minutes before you feel like you can talk to him. Immediately he restores it. Why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all manner of evil. We're clean. So David knew that New Testament theology. He just had a heart for that long before the New Testament was ever penned. So let me finish this thing up here. My good friend Trey Lewis preached last Wednesday, and, and he got done in 25 minutes. I just want to put a full notice out there. That will never happen with me unless I am sick or something. 
I'm going to call Trey tomorrow and say, dude, I am never going to ask you to preach on Wednesday because now they expect me to be done in 25 minutes. So I'm going to go on a little bit longer here. So now look at what happens. So David's repented. He's restored. He's in communion with God for the first time in 16 months. He's got a, he's got a mission from the Lord for the first time in 16 months. And look, he finds favor with God as he begins again to fight the Lord's battles. David's been fighting for himself for over a year. Now he's back fighting the Lord's battles. And it says here, David pursued. He and 400 men, so 200 of the men got tired and couldn't go all the way with David and them, but 400 men, and as they're going, they find an Egyptian in the open country, and they bring this Egyptian to David. They gave him bread, and he ate, and they gave him water to drink. And David said to this Egyptian, will you take me down to the Amalekites? Will you take me down to this band? And the Egyptian says, Swear to me by your God that you will not kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this band. So this is what I love. So David is now fighting the Lord's battles and this is an impossible thing. Listen, they didn't have GPS. They didn't have social media. They didn't know where these guys went. They're just having to kind of track them by old and uh, methods of antiquity. Where did these Amalekites go? And as they're pursuing, they find this near dead Egyptian former slave. And he's been left out there in the desert, and we find out through those verses that he hadn't eaten in three days, and he hadn't drank anything in three days. He's this close to death. And yet they find him, and so they get a little liquid in him, some water in him. They give him a little cake of raisins or figs or something like that, dates. And he eats it, and he gets his strength back, and David interrogates the guy and says, who are you, what's your name, where'd you come from? And the guy, the little Egyptian guy, says this. He says, I was a slave to the Amalekites. So he's a former slave to the Amalekites. And then he says this, we have been in that land of Judah and the Negev, and we, we, we've been on raids, and we also burned Ziklag with fire. So David's radar goes off. He's actually got now a firsthand witness of what went down in Ziklag. And so David says, where are the Amalekites? Where's this band? And the little guy, the little Egyptian guy, I don't know if he was little or not, but the Egyptian dude is sitting there, and he's been abandoned, left out there to die. I mean, you got to think the Amalekites now have tons of slaves because they've just raided David's hometown and they've got all the, and why tote a dying Egyptian with them, leave him out there in the desert to die? And they left him. So the Egyptian former slave says, yeah, if, if you promise by your God not to kill me, I'll take you to where they're going. I'll take you back to our base. Friends, that's what I love about the Lord. Listen, don't es underestimate the favor of God that can come upon you when you just repent and obey. David's just, I mean, literally, he's hours away from having been backslidden on God. He repents, and all of a sudden, favor starts finding him again. And, and God positions them to find this one dude in all of the land that can take them to the very place where their wives and their children are. That's favor. God has resources, opportunities, intersections, and people set aside to cross our paths. And if we will walk in obedience to him, we will encounter those things that he has positioned us for. That's what I love about obedience. Obedience isn't like really sensational or supernatural. People always want to talk about, man, let's talk about the surge of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And let's talk about massive encounter and talking in tongues and prophecies and signs and miracles and healings. I'm for all of that. I like all of that. But none of that does us any good if we're not being obedient. Because obedience places you in line with all of the blessing that God pours out. We're not blessed because we obey, we're blessed through our obedience.
It's not a barter system. It's not, okay, I obey and you got to give me something. No, God says, listen, I pour out my blessings in this arena. And if you're obedient, you're going to be in this arena. If you're over here, it's not that I'm withholding. You're just in the wrong place. My blessing's over here in the realm of obedience. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to just get bold. It's, it's highly likely that some that are listening to this message you're the reason why you're not experiencing the favor of God is because you've not positioned yourself in a consecrated obedience it doesn't mean he's punishing you you're just missing out on the good that he has for you just like David was and as soon as David gets obedient and repents he meets the one guy in all of the land that can take him to where he needs to be and so what does it look like so in in verse number 16 um the the Egyptian guy takes them to the enemy camp and it says when he had taken him down taken David down behold they the Amalekites were spread abroad over all the land and they're eating and they're getting drunk and they're dancing they're partying why because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah and so you can just picture the scene the Egyptian guy leads David down there. David's looking over a ridge, and he looks down, and there's all of these Amalekites, probably a 1,000. We'll find out in a few minutes that 400 of the Amalekites escaped. So if only, and it says only 400, just a 400 escaped. So it's probably over a 1,000 Amalekites there. David's got 400 men. And David's looking down, and he's seeing they're all getting drunk. That's what it means by drinking. They're all partying, they're all celebrating because they got all this stuff they've just stolen. But they're not in battle formation and they're not, in, they're not ready for battle because they're, they're drunk and they're just in a party mode. And so this is very typical, by the way, of, of the heart posture of those that aren't aligned with God. If you, if you take notice, you'll look around and, and it looks like in our culture, the people that aren't saved the people that don't love the Lord, the people who don't have any kind of reverence for God or his son or the word of God, if you, if you look long enough at the culture, you'll come away with the impression that these are the people that are living it up. These are the people that are having the life. They've got the money. They've got the pleasure. They've got the sex. They've got, the, they've got the, all the merchandise. They've got everything. But let me just tell you, they're just like the Amalekites. They're, they're partying it up in their ignorance, not knowing that over the edge are some onlooking eyes that are saying, oh, you're about to fall. You're just about to fall. That's why we don't envy the wicked, by the way. Forgive me if that sounds kind of like intense, but it's Bible language. We don't envy the wicked. And if you envy the wicked, you're, you're where David was right before 1 Samuel chapter 30. You've moved away from God. Because the wicked don't have anything lasting. They have pleasure in their sin for a season, but that season comes to an end. I, I don't know that I agree completely with this phrase, but I think it kind of helps us grasp it. Unbelievers party now and suffer for all of eternity. We suffer now and party for all of eternity. That's the bottom line. We celebrate for all of eternity with a little bit of suffering in this vapor of life. They celebrate during the vapor of life and then they suffer for all of eternity because they rejected Jesus Christ. So here is David and he's looking over the ledge and then verse 17 says, David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not one man escaped 
except for the 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. So let's just go there for a minute. David is now empowered to do what David was meant to do, which is what? Kill the bad guys and bring about justice. And that's exactly what he did. I think it's interesting that he let them get drunk all day until dusk. And then he said, all right, boys, let's go now. He let them get at their most vulnerable, staggering, drunken thing, and he battled them at night. He did not give them a chance to gain their bearings, to get in battle array. David had the privilege of watching them, knowing where each camp might have been broken up, and they went down into the, as the sun was setting, and they just wiped them out. Um, hmm, do I want to, I, I think I do want to run this rabbit trail. I think this will resonate with like 15 of you. Um, I, I really like the life of David because it reminds me that men are men. And in our generation, let me just tell you this, I'm going to vent. I think it's a holy vent, but if it's not, I anticipate your, your ability to forgive me. I, 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 I look at our culture today, and there is such an extreme amount of pressure on men to prove that we're spiritual, consecrated, kind and loving and that's all interpreted by feminizing men that in order for men to be good they have to be soft and I'm going to tell you something one of the things that I hope comes in the coming revival is a clear reestablishing of biblical masculinity and femininity that I don't have to be like a woman in order to be loving and my wife doesn't have to be like a man in order to be strong that we actually get to operate in our God-ordained roles. Let me tell you something. God has put something in the hardwiring of men, and if we are saved, it's a safe thing and a necessary thing, something in the hardwiring of men to execute justice. And I'm not advocating sinful violence, but I'm also never going to advocate this idea that the feminization of the American male is the answer to all the woes of society. Christian women, let me just say this. Don't believe that lie. You don't want your man to be soft and sissified when the bad guy comes around. And listen, I appreciate it, ladies. Some of you think, I can take care of myself. I don't need no man to take care of me. I got this thing covered. That's fine. Go ahead and take care of yourself. But in order for you to do that, you don't have to take away the fact that God made men a certain way. When I read the life of David, I'm just like, God, thank you for that in there. And what's crazy to me is David's also the mo I told you I was going to go on a rant here. David is also probably the one of the most po poetic and romantic and kind guys. I mean, read the Psalms. He is a, he's a feeler, but he's also a warrior. I got my almost 15-year-old son sitting on the first row, and I, I want Landon to get from his mother the kindness and the gentleness but I don't ever want that to so swallow him up that he doesn't get his father's boldness, decisiveness, strength, and unapologetic masculinity. Why do we have to choose? Okay, rant is over. I feel better. I don't know if you do, but I feel great. So David struck him down. What does that mean? He killed him. He straight up killed them. He and his 400 men went down there. Now, remember... Why is he doing it? Because those Amalekites had their wives and children. And so he's on a rescue mission. And so verses 18 and 19, and we'll be done. Here's what I call this. It's the beauty of David's reclamation, reclaiming. 
He reclaimed what he had, what he had lost. This is his, his moment to get back what the enemy stole. It says, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. Now, we know what that means historically in the life of David. It means David got his wives back. He, all the men got their wives back. All their kids were safe and sound. It's pretty incredible. It's the sovereign hand of God working in ways that are highly unusual at that time. And I appreciate the historical significance of it. And here's what I'm really wondering. I'm wondering for all of us in the room that can pinpoint some things that the enemy has stolen from us. Do we have faith, trust, confidence that God is able to give you a season of reclaiming what the enemy stole? It may not be the exact same thing he stole. The enemy, what he likes to steal most of all is time. He likes to steal our years and have us look back on those years and, and, and look back on them and regret. Oh, if I had only. Oh, if I had done this. And he, he loves to parade those years of regret. What if the force of grace from God in your life became so potent and strong and you had confidence in it that what you lost began to pale in comparison to what he's doing now and what he's going to do? What if we realigned our focus and our expectation? I, I say it often. I think it's a good time to say it now. God's not doing anything yesterday. It's a waste. It's a functional waste of our time to always be turned around looking backwards. I think we can learn from our past, but I'm going to tell you, the will of God is not for a single one of his children to live in a perpetual state of mourning over what they forfeited or what the enemy stole. Why? Because God is a master. It's in the book of Joel. I think it's, I think it's chapter 2 or 4 where it says, God will restore the years that the locust ate. Some situational swarm of locusts came and devoured up some of your years. Maybe it was a, a failed marriage. Maybe it was a failed relationship with your parents or your children. Or maybe it was a a regrettable mistake or a sin that you committed. I, I, just, I just feel like the Lord is saying, redeem the time. It's, it's too short to be looking back at that anymore. Have you confessed it? Have you brought it to the Lord? Have you, even if it wasn't a sin that needed to confess, have you brought it to the Lord and say, Lord, I'll never get that back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a burial service for that thing, and I'm going to walk away from the graveside because my life is not about what was dead. My life is about the one who is the resurrection and the life. And so David got back everything that he had lost. And please remember with me, he lost all of that because of his sin. Away with that belief that God's up there saying, yeah, I'm not going to help you because you brought this on yourself. Uh, some of the most powerful moments in my walk with Jesus is where God gave me grace when in a situation that I created because of my own foolishness. And David was experiencing that. And so David gets reunited with the very people that he had failed. <laughs> David rescued his two wives. I wonder what they said. I, I don't know if they were just so overwhelmed with, probably so, so overwhelmed with gratitude and the sense of rescue, but y'all know how it works. You know, you're happy in the moment, and then a few days later, Abigail steps in and says, why weren't you there? Where were, how could you leave us here all by yourself? I don't know what happened with David, but I do know this. He probably never viewed that marriage the same again or it's weird but those marriages the same again why 
Because he almost lost them. And I think it's just, again, a good pastoral reminder. Let's not wait until we almost lose things before we start valuing those things, those people, like, like they deserve. Um, there's not a perfect marriage in the room. There's not a perfect relationship between parents and children, whether they're still in the home or they're grown. There's, everybody's got flaws, but flaws does not equal fake. Flaws do not equal failure. It's just flawed. And so your marriage is flawed. Your spouse is flawed. Your parents and your children, they're flawed. Your pastors are flawed. You're flawed. And, and we, we have to get to the place where if, if we're really Christians, followers of Jesus, we, we have to go ahead and say, there's grace for your flaws. I love you. You're flawed, but I love you. And I, I'm a recipient of grace from God for my flaws and worse than my flaws. And because I'm a recipient of grace for my flaws, I'm going to give my spouse grace. And I don't want to get to a place where I almost lose somebody or something precious before I recognize the value of it. And so during this last couple of weeks of uh, 2019 and the first weeks of 2020, maybe put it on your prayer list. God, help me to see around the flaws and value this person like you value them. I promise you, if you seek the Lord's heart on that thing, he will absolutely reorient you. And then verse number 19, I am done. I'm out of verses. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, and that's just their goods. Nothing was missing, not anything that had been taken. I love this. David brought back all. I just love endings like that. It doesn't always work out that cleanly, but when it does, let's celebrate it. We say, hallelujah, thank you, Lord. As a matter of fact, let me give you this. We didn't have time to go through the rest of the chapter. Not only did David get back everything that was stolen from Ziklag, most precious of all is all, all these guys' wives and children, but the Amalekites had been robbing and plundering all these other places, and David and his army killed all of the Amalekites. And it says that they got all of these flocks, all of these herds, all of these possessions that the Amalekites had stolen from all of these other places that they had raided. And David and his men were the ones that put their neck out on the line. So the, the laws of war said they got to reclaim it. David actually came out of the backslidden state when he repented. And God began to, I'm not getting blessed just preaching this myself. God began to bless him, not just getting him back to ground zero, but blessing him above that. Do we leave a place in our heart for God to be that good to us? And friends, we have to. We don't want to ever just go live with the idea of, well, I can backslide all I want, and then I'm going to repent in about six months. I'm going to get me a good six months of doing things my way, and I'm going to repent. And Jeff told us that God will restore us and even bless us more than what we... No, 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 no. You're in big trouble you start thinking like that. But the fact of the matter is, is when we do get our wake-up call and we do repent and we do press in to know the Lord and we do get honest about what we, what, who we've been and we hit our rock bottom and when that rock bottom wakes us up and we say, God, help me, and he begins to help, I just still believe that he can do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. That's the kind of God we serve. Let's stand to our feet. Can you bow your head and close your eyes?
Would you take 10 seconds? It's a very safe place to do this. A very safe place. Just get honest about where you are with the Lord. Who you are in the Lord is settled if you're saved. But where are you with Him? And if you know that you're not where you need to be, just go ahead and confess and acknowledge it. Don't make any promises to him. Confess and acknowledge it. Confession is the easy part. Repentance is the most important part. That means you've acknowledged it. Now tell the Lord your mind's being changed about it, that you don't want to be where you've been if, if it isn't where you're supposed to have been. Again, you're not making promises. You're, you're saying, Lord, I repent. And ask him to meet you with grace right there. He's not threatening you. He's not scolding you. He's not shaming you. He's embracing you. Ask him to wash you clean. Just, Lord, wash me. Restore me. So, Father, for everyone in the room, myself included, thank you for being far more gracious to us than we can fathom. Lord, I just believe that what you've done for David in this chapter, you'll do for us. He's not your favorite. He's not extra special. He's one of your children. What you did for him, you'll do for us. Thank you for rock-bottom moments that wake us up. And I pray tonight, Lord, if someone's approaching that rock-bottom moment, that tonight you've gotten their heart so they never, never have to hit that hard ground. Begin to restore what the enemy stole. We look to our present and our future, Lord. We bury regret and shame and guilt and penance. And we step into the fullest of pardon through the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for making it possible. Thank you for making it actual. In your name, amen.